after his return from the defeat of Hedelemer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Hi, today we are looking at the concept of priesthood. Uh, we just heard in the scripture there that Melchizedek, this mysterious figure from Genesis chapter 14, was a priest king. Two very biblical concepts. Maybe you've got your own sense of what maybe a priest or a king is. Uh, but in reality, in UK society, uh, our concept of priest and king is a bit different to the biblical one, or at least our kind of interaction with it is a bit kind of sparse. Um, I don't have many interactions with a king and even our monarchy is just a symbol, whereas back in Bible times, kings really ruled with authority uh, in a whole other way. And so although we have government and leadership, maybe we can uh, enter into that subject in some kind of way, but it's not quite the same as kind of the biblical uh, kingship that we see. And when it comes to priesthood, well, that's another step altogether. We don't have priests that kind of interact with our day-to-day life, not for most of us. Uh, maybe if you're uh, raised in Catholicism, maybe you have, or maybe if you've watched the Indiana Jones films, I think that's my other concept of priesthood from the Temple of Doom. I think that's my only real interaction with priesthood. But the reality is we need to understand what the Bible has to say about priests because Jesus is called the great high priest. It's integral to who he is and our relationship with him, how we interact with him and how we deal with our own lives as well. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to do a bit of a biblical study, get into the whole thing around priests. So we're going to go on a journey around that. The reality is the Bible is filled with lots of concepts that don't necessarily chime with our day-to-day life. And we have to get into it and understand it. And we shouldn't be afraid of doing that, but should do the hard work we need to do to understand it. Let me illustrate this further. 18 months ago, I was in a team meeting uh, on the church staff and I said, you know what, we probably should put COVID on the agenda for the next few weeks. I think it'll be all right, but just to be safe, let's put it on there. And uh, my team loved to uh, uh, quote that back to me at various points. Remember, Stephen, that COVID thing's going to be all right, isn't it? I was like, ah, yes. 18 months on, suddenly this COVID thing that was just kind of somewhere in the ether has landed and we suddenly all know about COVID. We know where it comes from. We know what the R number means. We've been tracking statistics uh, week in, uh, week out. We know where the hospital admissions are at locally. 
I personally had done quite a lot of digging into vaccine technology and development. I was a bit nervous about having my vaccine, thinking, really, can you develop a medicine that quickly? So I'm actually double jabbed up now. I've had both of mine, which means I'm ready to go on holiday. Uh, my wife's not had either of hers, so I'm looking for people to go with. So if you've had both of yours, uh, do let me know. And I'm maybe go somewhere sunny and nice uh, together. Uh, but, you know, I've looked at the side effects. I've looked at what the public health policy is uh, so we can help navigate it as a place of worship and lots of other things. Suddenly I'm clued up around it. Why? Why have I bothered to do that? Well, it's because it's just flooded into our lives. This thing called COVID is pervasive. Suddenly I'm concerned about my own health. The reason I had my jab early is because I had asthma in my 20s. And so I was suddenly in a vulnerable category. And uh, I care about my family, care about uh, my ageing parents and uh, the fact that they sit in another category. I care about society and how it's been impacted, affected. I care about how the whole world's been affected in reality. This thing has brought disaster upon us. I want to know what is the solution? How are we going to get out of this? As a result, I'm skilled up. I've got more knowledge about it. We've all become many experts in epidemiology, haven't we? I'm sitting with my barber early this week. You know, we're having a chat about what we know about the vaccine and COVID. It's part of our vernacular. When something serious happens, when you suddenly understand it, it's worth investing in, in investigating and investing in further knowledge about it. When we realise there's something even more serious than COVID going on in our lives, it's worth the investment to find out what the solution is. And the Bible is really clear. It says that we've got a greater problem than COVID. It says that we've got a big problem in terms of our human condition. Very serious. Our personal standing and status before a holy God the very issues of life and death, our moral bankruptcy, the fact that we all do things, say things and uh, think things that are wrong, they have deep implications. And uh, the assumption of the Bible is that you and me are not okay. In and of ourselves, we're not okay. We are vulnerable to this thing called sin. We are vulnerable to this thing called death and we need a solution. What is the solution? The solution is a great high priest whose name is Jesus. So we're going to look today at this priesthood. We're going to look at this solution, this need for our souls. And maybe this is the first time you've ever looked at this. Or maybe you're a Christian thinking, oh, I've never really looked at this before. Let me tell you, it's significant for each one of us to really dig deep, to really understand this subject. So what is a priest? Well, helpfully in Hebrews 5, 1, it says this, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to what? To act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. There's two things there. High priest is to act on behalf of others. They're to be a mediator, to be a go-between. That's what a priest does between us and a holy God. We can't approach by ourselves. We're too sin-sick. We're too infected. Now we need a go-between and that's what a high priest acts as. That's what Jesus does. And need that well, nothing to do to make everything okay, to offer gifts and sacrifices where things are wrong in our lives, to make things right. And we're going to learn today that though we're looking, looking at a story from thousands of years before Jesus is even born, actually the story is about Jesus and about his wonderful priestly work that we need in our lives. We've been speaking in our service, if you've been watching that uh, today, about, you know, draw to, draw to mind now things that God has done for us our sense of feeling the, the, the impact of God's love and life in our, in our, in our love and in kind of a, uh, uh, interaction and impact in our lives. You know, how has he recently blessed us? But sometimes it's hard to grab hold of those things. Thinking, I can't think of many good things right now. 
But this truth, the fact that Jesus is upon the throne, that he is a priest forever, changes everything. And so no matter what is going on in life, you've got somewhere to turn. And that's where we're going today. Let me start uh, by praying for us as we get into this. Heavenly Father, thank you. You know that everyone who is watching this right now, thank you. You've got something to say to each one of us, whether we are investigating the Christian faith for the first time, just being brought, upon, brought along or dragged along uh, this particular Sunday. Lord, or whether we've been walking with you for many years, I want to pray for a fresh revelation of who you are and what you've done, that we might stand firm upon you, that we might know that we are okay, not because we feel okay, not because we've done well this week, but because, Lord, you've made a way for us to be okay, right within ourselves, right with you, God, right with each other as well. Pray, help me as I preach, help us all as we listen and take, upon, take us all on board, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story we're looking at in Genesis 14, um, in one sense, is mysterious. And uh, there's this kind of surprising figure, Melchizedek, that has arrived. And uh, as a preacher, you kind of get to these passages and think, OK, what is the Bible exactly saying? What is it that I'm meant to be saying to the people who are listening? But the great thing about this passage is all of that work has been done for me. Because although Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, he also appears in Psalm 110. I'm not going to look at that right now, but feel free to go and read that for yourself. But also, again, in the book of Hebrews. So Genesis is where we're reading from. But we're going to flip right to the other end of the Bible, to, to Hebrews 7, where the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this mysterious character of Melchizedek and unpacks who he is, why it relates to who Jesus is, what it means for each of us, and how we should respond as well. And he's going to teach us, actually, even to handle the Word of God. So the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to some Jewish people. They understand Genesis. They've grown up on it. And they understand priesthood much better than we ever will. Because they grew up in a time where the temple existed, uh, where they would have to make sacrifices, where they're part of a whole uh, set of laws and rituals and everything that was put in place. Things were put in place way after Melchizedek. But things that they, they knew, they knew they needed a priest. They'd grown up learning that and living in that. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, well, the, the priesthood you've got, you know, it's not as good as the priesthood of Jesus. And to do that, he points back to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So let's read it together. It says this in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So he does a very helpful thing. He just summarises the story for us. If you're watching last week, Glenn uh, Scrivener was here with us, drew out a picture of the narrative that's going on in uh, Hebrews 14. Abraham's uh, nephew Lot had been kidnapped by a bunch of kings and uh, Abraham, along with another bunch of kings, went to rescue him and bring him back. Had these nine kings that are going on. And uh, that's where we left off last week. And uh, Abraham defeats them, gets his nephew Lot back. And on the way back, he's met by this character, Melchizedek, this other king, this 10th king. And, uh, and this Melchizedek go, well, goes out, meets him and blesses him. And Abraham responds by giving him stuff. He takes a summary of the story here at the beginning of Hebrews, which is a great thing for us to do as well. Let me encourage you, if you're not reading your Bible, Bible read it. And when you read it, really engage with it. Engage with it in such a way where you can summarise what's going on. He's taken a whole bunch of scripture, just summarised it in a sentence. That's a good thing for us to do. Another thing that he's done here is sometimes there's bits of scripture we don't understand. Well, a great way to understand scripture is to find other scriptures to help, it, help us understand it, to illuminate it further for us. And there's two good Bible study tools for us there. 
But so he, he gives us some, a summary and then he starts unpacking who is this Melchizedek and how does it point to Jesus. And I'm just going to pick up on four ways in which he does that in this chapter 7. But reality is lots of ways, lots of other verses that he talks about in 7 and 8. Go and read it for yourself. But let's start where he starts. He says this. He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem. That is King of Peace. So he picks up on Melchizedek's name. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Just describe to you that the human condition is the fact that we're in wrongness. Each of us has sin and weakness and difficulty in our life. And we need a king of rightness to make everything right. King of righteousness. And that's who Melchizedek is. And he's pointing to the greater king of righteousness, to Jesus, who came to make everything right in our lives. Are you okay? Do you feel okay right now? Do you know you're performing well? The reality is all of us can answer that. Even if in this particular moment I am, there's moments in every week, maybe every day, where you know you're not quite right. And Jesus has come to make things right for you and make things right between you and the Lord God Almighty. He says he's the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of Salem. And that's the, the, where he, the, kind of the town, the city that he particularly rules over. But even in those words, there's something for us to pick up on then. Salem basically means shalom means peace. And Salem is probably where Jerusalem comes from. That's probably the same place. He is the king of peace. Again, pointing to the great prince of peace, Jesus, who came to bring peace. I think in a world that is so shrouded in anxiety right now, I think people are grappling with the fact that mental health isn't great. Actually, he's one who comes to bring peace. Not just within our minds, not just within our hearts, but also between us and God. That we might know peace in our life. Might know what it is to be made right, clothed with righteousness, other words that we see in the scriptures, but also to know peace between us and the living God. He goes on though, says this, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Why is the writer of Hebrews picking up on that? So when we introduce Melchizedek, he literally just appears and he's gone again. We don't find out who he's born to. We don't learn about his children. We don't understand his, we don't learn anything about his family line. You might think, well, that's not that unusual. But for the book of Genesis, that's very, very unusual. The fact that they is, the writer of Genesis is silent on who Melchizedek is and where he's come from speaks to us. God is in the writing of that book to show us something here. When I appeared on your screen down in the lower third, my name appeared on my Instagram handle. That's how we introduce ourselves, isn't it? Like, who are you? What have you got to say? What are the pictures you put up? That's the kind of thing. Uh, you didn't say... That's Stephen Dawson, son of Graham and Kathy, brother of Kay and Paul and married to Emma and the billion kids that he has. Well, part, partly the reason we, there won't be enough room for all of that. But it's because we don't really work like that. But back in Bible times, where you came from is massive. Who you were born to, where you lived, how many years you lived, who your children were, that's your introduction. And to not have that mentioned means that you were either a person who was hidden in shame or you weren't very important. So there are people in Genesis who are mentioned who have no genealogies because they're, not, they're just kind of side characters. They're not important. But anyone who is anyone has a genealogy except Melchizedek. Is that because he's in shame? Is it because he's unimportant? No. And we know that because Abraham, who's our protagonist that we've been looking at over the last few weeks and will continue to do for several weeks to come, well, he's the one, he's kind of at the top of the tree when it comes to genealogy. He's the one that God has chosen He's the one that God has chosen to bless, that he might be able to be a blessing to everyone. 
And how does he relate to Melchizedek? He considers Melchizedek to be his superior. He honours him. He bows down to him. He offers worship. Uh, he offers tithes to him. So it's clearly Melchizedek is very important. So why doesn't he have a genealogy? Well, he doesn't have a genealogy because he's pointing to someone else. He's pointing to another person. He's pointing to Jesus. And the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say to them, the priesthood that you have is shadow. It's a shape of what is to come. It's not the real thing. Your priesthood is based in the tribe of Levi. There's so much I could say on this. Based in the tribe of Levi. And, and to be a priest, you need to be a man. You need to be born into a certain family. And you can serve as a priest if you're between the age of 30 and 50. And you can serve if you're in a certain way, in terms of a certain kind of healthy body. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's not the kind of priest you need. You need a priest like the one of Melchizedek, who's not appointed based upon his family line and family ties. He's based on the fact that he is appointed by the living God. Melchizedek was appointed by the living God to go out and bless Abraham. Jesus is the same. Jesus is appointed, not based upon where he's come from, but because he was appointed by the living God. Why? To bless you and me, to make peace between us and God, to act as our mediator, to take away our sin and shame. That's why he's not going to a genealogy. And he goes further, he says this, he, is, um, uh, he neither has beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So not only is he not written down, I'm sure Melchizedek does have a father and mother, but it's not recorded. It's not recorded because it's pointed towards Jesus. Again, he, Melchizedek did, was born and he did die, although some things he didn't, but we can pick up a live bunch if you stick around later. But my reading of it, and as I've looked at other scholars, they say, yeah, no, he was a man, he did live and die, but it's not recorded. And it's not recorded because it's pointing towards Jesus, who has neither end nor beginning. Jesus existed before the creation of the whole world. He was there at the foundation of it. He knew your name even before the world was spinning. And he is going to be here forever. That's the kind of priest he is. The priests of the Levites and of Israel, well, they could serve for 20 years, but eventually they would retire or they would die and someone else would have to replace them. That's not like Jesus. Jesus serves forever at the Father's side. And that's a wonderful thing. He is certain and sure and faithful and good. And we can put our trust fully upon him. Not in terms of how we're feeling, or how things are going, how we're performing. No, based upon the fact that he is always acting as a priest on our behalf, seated at the right hand of God, never to be moved. Not based upon lineage, not based upon beginning or ending, but there forever for us. As we read through the rest of chapter 7 and 8, we read more about why Melchizedek is like Jesus and why Jesus is this amazing high priestess. But let me just pick up two more verses in verses 25 and 26. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This high priest is able to save to what? To the uttermost. One of my sons was asking me this week, Dad, what is the worst thing you've ever done? And uh, he's at an age where I actually shared with him what's the worst thing I've ever done. Not going to share it with you. But we talk about it. And I talked about it because I want him to know that even though that's so shameful, so difficult, you know what? God is able to cover it. 
God is able to save to the uttermost. Maybe you're watching, maybe you're thinking right now, yeah, Stephen, if, if you asked me that, I couldn't tell you in front of everyone. I wouldn't want to tell anyone, in fact, because it's so shameful, so difficult. No one could possibly forgive us. This says, those who draw near to God, he's able to save to the uttermost. When the writer of the Hebrews is writing to his audience, for them, they know they're part of the uh, uh, priesthood of Israel. And the reality is there were not provision for every sin. There were provision for some sins, but not all sins. And uh, even then, the priests they were coming to had to make uh, uh, offerings for their own sins. It wasn't perfect. It was fallible. It wasn't perfect. But this priest that we've got, Jesus, he's perfect. And he's able to save to the uttermost. And now sometimes we, you know, we're not tempted to go to a, the priest down the road. We haven't got one of them, but sometimes we're tempted to kind of make kind of sacrifices or uh, um, try and clean up our own mess. Think, oh, well, I'm sinful, so I'll make up for it by doing this. I'll perform some good works. Well, the Bible has some stuff to say about that as well. It says your finest works, your best performance, you on your best day are nothing but filthy rags. It doesn't clean you up. In fact, it makes you messier because you start trusting in yourself. What's the way to sort your life out? What is the way to be okay? What's the way to deal with your deepest shame? Is to come to the good priest. That's your only hope. If we build our security on anything else, it's like sinking sand. This is maybe new news for you if you are not a Christian. And hopefully, in one sense, it's bad news that you've got shame and sin, but it's good news that it can be dealt with. But for us who've been Christians, even for a long time, we can get off course with this very easily. We can start by trusting in Jesus, but quickly start adding things to his perfect sacrifice. Like, Jesus, oh, I, know, I know you've paid the way, but I've not done this well this week, so I need to read my Bible more. Or I, I need to pray more. I need to stop doing this, that and the other. Maybe, maybe that will make me acceptable. No, it is good to pray. It is good to read your Bible. It is good to deal with your sin. But that is not your hope for right standing. That is not your hope for being okay. Jesus alone is that. He is the holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted one above the heavens. He is my hope. He can be your hope. There's only one person who is qualified to do the mending. It is Jesus, who doesn't sacrifice the animal with its blood, but sheds his own blood on the cross for you and me. He is the one who was raised from life, giving us hope that we can be raised to life, that death is not the end for you and me. It's not a popular idea to say that Jesus is the only way, but it's true. And when you grasp it, it's releasing as well. Suddenly you realize, how am I going to climb to the top of the mountain of my own standards? Man, I miss my own standards, let alone God's standards. I haven't got to climb that mountain. I can come to one who's done it for me. I've got a go-between who thoroughly understands me. God was God, but he was man as well. He's this wonderful mediator. The way is now open. I have someone who can do for me what I never could have done myself. That's what Hebrews 7 says to us and much more. But let's just flip back to Genesis 14. Let's just look at three more things, three more things that Melchizedek does that help us understand more about Jesus. First thing we see is Melchizedek greets Abraham from the battle. And as I read it, I think Abraham must have been pumped. He's won. He's got his nephew back. And uh, that's because my concept of battle is just a PlayStation game. But I think battle is pretty fairly wearying. It's pretty traumatic. It's difficult. And the reality is life's like that. I think this season, whatever, people feel weary, feel tired, feel a bit done over, a bit battle weary. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes to us. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. He went out to meet Abraham. He comes out to meet you. 
Let me tell you that right now. Right now, as you listen to this, God is coming to you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He wants to speak encouragement to you, speak comfort to you, speak truth into your situation. Let him come to you, receive him. What does he do next? He then feeds Abraham. He gives him bread and wine. Bread and wine would just really been staple food types for them back then. Uh, but doesn't, I can't help but think, yes, but also what about bread and wine of communion? He came and refreshed his body and his soul. Well, we need that too. And uh, that's why we love together. That's why we're starting to meet in pieces. Person. It's lovely to have people in the room with me right now. And uh, but if you've not been to our in-person services, please come along just to take communion if nothing else. Because that's a wonderful moment to say, you know, I come with my mess. I come with my wrongdoing. I come to the table of communion. And I come to receive the bread and wine as a sign of God's love, of his forgiveness, of his sacrifice for me. Why? So that I might be refreshed, that I might go again. I love communion. It means I've got to look again at the realities. I've got a need of God. I've got to go back over my thing. I've got to take this seriously. I'm going to take the bread and wine. I've got to come and be genuinely repentant about my sin from the week and then be refreshed and go again. Third thing he does is he blesses Abraham. He prays for him. Pointing again to Jesus. Jesus is interceding, praying for each one of us forever at the right hand of God. You know, he's not kind of popping in occasionally to see his Father in heaven. No, he sat down, finished his work, sitting next to the Father in heaven, praying for you and me, praying about our weakness, praying about our sin. So I pray, God, help Stephen today. You know the temptations he's facing. You know his weaknesses. Please help him. He's praying the same for you as well. That's so helpful. This gives us such boldness. When life is tough, I can take courage. When I've messed up, I can take courage. Why? Because I've got a great priest who's always there, ready to pray for me. Let's just finish, let's just finish by looking at how Abraham responds. Abraham responds very simply by praising God lifting his voice in prayer and then giving this tithe. This is before any system or rules is made about giving, about any particular percentage. No, he just gives a tenth because why? Because he just loves. He's being loved and he just loves in return. Say, like, God, if you're this good, you're so wonderful. You've come to me. You've blessed me. You've refreshed me and you've prayed for me. Well, how can I do anything other than respond in worship? And he gives of his money. Crazy, 10% of everything he had, he gave to God. We're right in this middle of this giving campaign. We're up to, I think, over 90 grand now, just given by this church, let alone the gifts from the other churches that are going to come into the pot. That's a lot of money. That marks big sacrifices from some people. Many people in this church give tens of thousands of pounds every year to the church, but ultimately to Jesus, the great high priest and king. Why? Because they know it is to be loved by him. They've seen the seriousness of their situation and all that God has done for them. How can I not but respond in worship? Let me encourage you. Maybe that's for you today. You think you're thankful to what God has done for you. Well, give. Literally get the link out, get, get your app out on your phone, your bank. It doesn't feel very spiritual, but it is. It's a spiritual act of worship to God. Some of you need to do that. Others of you, maybe this is new news for you, that you need a priest. Maybe you just need to sit in that for a few minutes. Maybe as we're singing this next song and just say, God, Maybe I do need a high priest. Please make yourself known to me.